Church. I'm Pastor Trevor. I'm glad you could join us uh, this morning. Those of you joining us online, uh, welcome as well. Uh, before we begin this morning, let's go to our Father in Heaven in prayer. Holy Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity to gather as a body to lift up our voices, to hear one another sing praises and the truths that you've revealed to us as we seek to glorify you in all that we do. May we be encouraged in doing so. And we come, Father, before you, uh, one, seeking forgiveness for our sins, and we do so confidently, knowing that we are forgiven on the basis of the blood that was shed by your Son. And we also ask for wisdom this morning. We ask that we, we would hear your voice, your word, as we come to your word, uh, that your word would edify us, that we would pay attention to it, that we would heed it, that we would allow the Spirit to convict and cut as necessary and to encourage and to build up as well, and that we would follow his leading. So help us to be focused, help us not to be distracted this morning, uh, but help us to be solely devoted to hearing you so that we would be edified, equipped, and sanctified so that we can go out from here glorifying you in all that we do. Father, we ask all of this by the power of the Spirit in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our journey through Hebrews can be likened to a journey down a river. Uh, the prologue, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1, was the source of the river. It was nice, wide, and deep. It was smooth sailing, smooth uh, paddling. And then last week, we went to verses 5 through 14, where the author's uh, arguments became a little bit more focused. And so it's more of a river, river than it was a lake, and the current began to pick up its pace as the author used seven Old Testament quotations, um, exposited them, and then that leads us to our passage today, Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. And so now that argument, that river, the pace picks up, the current picks up. In fact, here we get our first exhortation, our first real specific application of the letter. So the current of the river could be likened to rapids. You can hear it coming, and when you get there, you're surprised by its power, by its force. And once you're in it, you're in it. There's not much you can do about it. You can paddle, you can navigate the best you can. But if you're going to be faithful to the river, to the journey that we're on, we can't get out of the boat. We have to ride these rapids out. We can't just skip them as some would rather do than deal with the text that is in front of us. So our passage, if you haven't turned there already, go ahead and turn there. And we are going to read verses 1 through 4. It will be on the, passage, it will be on the screen above us. Uh, and if you need a Bible, they are underneath uh, chairs around you. You can open it. You can follow along. Please do follow along because once we leave it on the screen, you will want it in front of you to reference. And if you need a Bible, you can take the Bible around you or we have Bibles by the entryway as well that you can take. You can take as many as you, as you want. So let's read Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. 
I want us to begin by first looking at the structure of the warning given to us by the author. Then we will consider, well, what message exactly are we to pay closer attention to? Followed by the consequences of not paying attention to that message. And then closing with considerations on how this neglect actually happens within our churches and within our own lives. So let's consider the structure of the warning. The therefore at the beginning of our passage transitions us from the exposition found in verses 1, 1 through 14 to the exhortation of chapter 2. And if you've read Hebrews at least once before this morning, you've noticed that there are a lot of therefores in the letter. And all those therefores are rooted in the deep truth of who Jesus is as discussed in verses 1 through 4 of the prologue in chapter 1. So this therefore that we have before us is the first therefore of 20 that we will discuss. Not this morning, but as we go through the letter of Hebrews. Just want to clarify. The first therefore leads us to the first of five warnings in the epistle. And this warning is our focus this morning. It is one of the rapids that we will come upon as we go through the letter. After stating the warning, after explicitly stating the warning to his audience, the author provides the reasoning behind it. And it's one that we've talked about before. If the message of old, the Old Testament, if the Old Covenants, when God spoke to the fathers by the prophets, if that message being mediated by angels was reliable, and if every transgression of that message received its just reward, its just retribution, how can we escape if we transgress the message given by the Son, who is greater? So recall the consequences of the transgressions of the last age. Now remember, we've just preached through 1st, uh, 2nd Samuel, and 1st and 2nd Kings. So most of you who were here for that ought to be familiar with the consequences of transgressing the Old Covenant. Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 27 and 28 list these consequences. Some of them uh, include famine, pestilence, military defeat, slavery, oppression, and the final and most severe consequence, exile. Exile out of the promised land. God's people leaving the land that he promised them and taking them into a land of idolatry. But it's not only those consequences that the author is referring to. We also have all the consequences associated with the various case laws given to the people of God in Exodus 21 and 22. Laws about slaves, laws about restitution, social justice, the Sabbath, and the various uh, festivals, feasts, and holidays. So if such consequences were suffered then by message delivered by lesser means and by lesser beings than the Son, then what would the consequence be if we neglect the message that the Son has given to us? Paul, he uses the same, the Apostle Paul uses the same reasoning to speak of the glory to be had by the New Covenant versus the Old in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 7 through 8. He writes, Now the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Same reasoning there that what was old, if such great consequence, such great things happened because of that, how much more so now with the new covenant, with greater glory, with the greater Son, who is the one who sent the Spirit. 
So since the message given to us by the Son is greater, then we must not think that, tr- that the transgressions against this message delivered by the Son, which is why it's such a great salvation, we must not think that we will suffer lesser penalties. And this will not be the last time that our author makes this point. He will come back to this throughout the letter over and over again. The author closes his argument here by adding and reminding his, our audience that this message was also affirmed by God with signs, wonders, and miracles. Now, note the word choice here. Signs denotes that people, when they see it, they should be discerning something, right? Just like we see signs on the road. They point to something, they tell us something. So when, we, when the people see the signs given by God, they should be thinking, what does this mean? Wonders denotes the amazing awe of God's power and work. People marveled at it. And then, of course, miracles acknowledge that the work, that the sign and wonder that's being done is one clearly ascribed to God and is not done by man. Now, I want to acknowledge something here. Now, I'm going to do my best not to go too far off the point. But the way that the author mentions this makes it sound like the signs, the wonders, the miracles, they're no longer common practice or that they're no longer a commonly experienced phenomenon among the church at this time. So some would argue that here, the ceasing of the miraculous gifts of the apostles, it is taught in this text. For if the miracles and the wonders were common and expected, then why wouldn't the author simply say something like this? While God also bore witness and continues to bear witness by signs and wonders and various miracles among you, but he doesn't. He doesn't appeal to a common experience. He doesn't appeal to a common expectation probably because there isn't one. He's referring to uh, the signs the apostles did when they brought the Son's message to others. So he's referring to the apostolic gifts, but those apostolic gifts were given to show that the authority of Christ was given to the apostles to deliver the message of the kingdom, to deliver the Son's message, of which the author's audience are recipients of, just like we are today. If we wonder about the veracity of the Son's message, we ought to consider the signs that accompanied it. Primarily, the main sign, the resurrection, that the tomb is empty. Like, that's the first and only miracle that we all need to wrestle with. If the tomb is not empty, then none of this matters. If you don't believe in the resurrection, the word is not going to help you. It does not matter. But if you believe in the resurrection, then everything that is said matters. All of it. Every single word of it. So we have the resurrection that accompanies the message, but we also do have the works of the apostles and their testimonies and those who witnessed those works and those who gave up their lives readily for the sake of Christ, having seen those wonders, having seen those miracles, and having heard the message. Now, to be fair, this verse in its context is not intended to speak on the topic fully of whether or not signs and miracles go beyond the apostolic age. We can't rest on this passage alone go, look, see, clearly miracles and wonders, they no longer happen because of how it's written here in chapter 2. But it certainly is a piece of the puzzle. But what is clear in this passage is that is the author's focus and main concern, which is the same focus and main concern of the apostles and that of Jesus. It is not the presence or the experience of signs and miracles or wonders, but it is on the preaching of and the receiving of God's word. The example of the church in Acts 2.42 is a key example of the church being focused on 
the word and not miracles, not tongues, not the next Pentecost, but truth. Right in Acts 2, verse 42, on the day of Pentecost, after the miracles have happened, after he spoke in tongues, after Peter gave his sermon, after 3,000 repented and were baptized and were added to the church, this is what it, it, Luke records for us about the church. And they, the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Right? They weren't looking for the next Pentecost. They weren't looking for the next miracle, for the next wonders. Now, miracles and wonders were being done by the apostles. If you keep reading Acts 2, it says miracles were still being done by the apostles, but that's not what the people were devoted to. They were devoted to hearing the word of God. But what exactly have they heard that we are to pay closer attention to? Well, this, it's the message of the Son, right? This is the context of Hebrews, the entire letter. This is what the author brings to us in, in the second verse of the letter in Hebrews 1-2, where he says, But in these last days, he, that's God, has spoken to us by his Son. So it's the message of the Son that we are to pay closer attention to. This message speaks not only of the words he spoke, though, it's not just about what Jesus said. It is about who he is and what he did, the life he lived, the death he suffered, the resurrection that he experienced, and the reality that he has ascended to the right hand of the majesty, all so that we would be reconciled to the Father, all so that we would be in right relationship with him. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.23, I'm not going to read it, but he shortens the message to two words, Christ crucified. It's not that the message is only about the cross, though the cross is certainly the focus of the message, but the cross in itself is not everything. When Paul speaks of Christ crucified, he speaks not, o- not only of the death of Christ, but of Christ himself, that is, the person of Christ. Who is Jesus exactly? How did he live? Why did he live? What did he teach? So when Paul speaks of, we preach Christ crucified, or we preach Christ and him crucified, He's using what is called a synecdoche, a a figure of speech where a a part represents the whole. So by speaking of Christ himself, when he says Christ crucified, when he speaks of Christ himself, we're given a picture of holiness, a a standard that you and I, we clearly cannot meet. Think of the Sermon on the Mount given by Jesus in Matthew 5.48 where he says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Yet, This Christ that we preach, this son, the son of David, he has made a way for us. That's Christ crucified. His crucifixion is the way. That's the cross. It's his blood. We must not think that there are other ways to the Father or that the way given to us as spoken and demonstrated by the Son was somehow incomplete or insufficient. If we do, there is no salvation in that. There's no salvation in thinking that if you sin and you partake of the sacraments, it's the sacraments that remove your guilt. It's the priest that removes the guilt. That's not the Jesus of Scripture. Jesus, the blood on the cross that he shed 2,000 years ago, when he said it is finished, that removes the sin. When you confess and repent to Christ alone, that removes your sin. That is what saves as Paul says in Galatians 5.4, now remember in Galatians, Paul's talking to Judaizers who they want a tangible thing. They're going back to the law. They like what's tangible and they're trying to find other means to be justified. So he says, you are severed from Christ. Severed, which means you're not in Christ. You're not a part of Christ. And if you're severed from Christ, you're not part of the body, which means 
You're not saved. He says, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. So when we go by other means rather than by the grace of Christ alone, we are severed from Christ. At the same time, we must not treat it lightly either. We must not think by embracing the message of the Son and by what he has done on the cross that our sins will go, go unnoticed. That, well, he paid it all. I can live how I want to live. Whereas if we can, cheat, we can treat the blood of Christ cheaply. This is exactly why the author makes a comparison between the old with the new. If the old message being given by lesser means suffered such great earthly consequences, how much more so would transgressions against the new message be punished? Having been given, the given by the Son, the name above all names, if your soul has been purchased by the precious blood of the eternal Son of God, what makes you think you can keep living in your sin? So let us consider the consequence of such neglect, the consequences of not paying attention to the Son's message. Now, the initial consequence, as the author points out in verse 1, is, is a drifting away, a slow, unnoticeable drift until it's too late, and that's often how it happens. We think we're good, we think we're all right, but if we don't pay attention, we'll be way off course, and if it becomes too late, then it's too late. And that's when the author asks the question, how shall we escape? And he asks it with the implication that the answer is, we won't. If you drift away from this great salvation, if you don't pay attention to the Son's message, how can you escape from the just retribution? You won't. And now some have argued, well, he's talking about discipline. Like You're going to suffer discipline. But we need to understand that discipline is a way of escape. If the Father, if God is disciplining you and it leads you to repentance, that's escape. right? When, it, when God puts his hand upon you, and you're feeling the guilt as, as David felt in Psalm 32, and you go to the Father in confession and repentance, you've escaped the wrath. You've heard the Son's message. You've paid attention to it. So discipline is a way of escape, and the author will talk about discipline in Hebrews 12. He knows this. In Hebrews 12, he tells us that if, if you're disciplined by God, that's good. It means he loves you. It means you're a child of God. We should embrace such things. But when you neglect the message and you drift away, there is no escape. There is no way out. There is nowhere to turn. If you neglect the son's word to the point you drift away, because let me just be clear, clear on this. It's a warning for a reason. Some of us will neglect the message for a season. And this is why the warning exists. There's an opportunity for you to repent. Right? There is an opportunity for you to escape. But if you continue to neglect it to the point to where you fully drift away, you won't. If you forsake Christ now, he will forsake you before the Father on the day of judgment. Hear him speak in Mark 8, 38. Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, or whoever neglects me in my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now again, this is a warning. It's given before the consequences set in. And we need to understand warnings are not legalism in disguise. Now, certainly, they can lead to that, but that's not their intention. Nor are, are warnings negative Nancy messages 
aimed to stifle hope. Boy, he's just taking all the fun out of this. Where's, where's the hope? Where's the grace? But that's exactly the purpose of the warning. It's to remind us of the grace, to remind us of the hope. It's meant to keep us from losing hope. Warnings in Scripture are meant to fuel faithfulness and keep people from being deceived into eternal damnation. And pastors who are faithful will do just that. They will warn you. They will, they will warn you regardless of how uncomfortable it may be for you or for them. And this is Paul's heart in warning his people, as it is mine as well this morning. Hear the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 4. Paul writes, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts would be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. You, you accept it. That's Paul's concern. It's my concern. And notice in verse 4, he says, if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, and that's the issue in America. A lot, everyone believes in Jesus just about, right? But what Jesus? Which Jesus? Catholic Jesus? Jesus of Scripture? Of truth? The Mormon Jesus? Which Jesus? Social justice Jesus? The Donald Trump Jesus? We need to be sure we understand. And we're easily deceived. And that's why Paul's concerned. That's why we have warnings. New Testament is littered with warnings about being deceived. We're not talking about obvious foolish philosophies we're talking about beliefs that like it sounds christian yeah but is it we need to test everything and maybe you're wondering is this really necessary right how does this actually happen within the church isn't this warning in hebrews 2 isn't this for those who don't know christ no it's not not directly anyway certainly those who are not saved if they do not believe, they need to understand, and maybe it's you, you need to understand that if you continue to neglect God's invitation to look upon the Son and believe, you will not escape judgment. And, and you're hearing it now, so you're clearly without excuse, but also the Word of God is it's everywhere in this country. So even more so, you just pick up a Bible and read it. But this warning by the author, it is given to the church by God. For there will be many within the church who think that they are anchored in Christ because they believe they are. But one cannot be anchored in Christ if one neglects the message of the Son, if one neglects the word of Christ, if one neglects his teaching, his commands. I want to share with you some results from the Ligonier Ministries a 2022 State of Theology survey that they do every two years. Um, I attached it, the link to it in the pre-sermon email, uh, but I wanted to share some of the results the results. That survey does a, a survey of Americans in general and then evangelicals um, among those, and it compares the two categories. Now, in the study, an evangelical is a person who believes in at least these four things. Uh, one, the Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. Two, it is very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Three, Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. 
Four, only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as the Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. I mean, that seems pretty straightforward. That's fair. Makes sense until we see the numbers. Because despite this, the majority of self-proclaimed evangelicals may be evangelicals, but by the definition of God's word, are not believers. Whereas 94% agree that sex outside of marriage is a sin, 43% believe Jesus to be a great teacher, but not God. So four out of ten evangelicals deny the deity of Christ, deny that he is the son of God. John 8, 24, Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am. Right now, in the Greek, the English word he isn't there. It's ego eme. Jesus is pointing out Yahweh. He's saying, I am, right? The great I am. I am. I am God. Unless you believe that I am God, you will die in your sins. Another result of that survey, 56% believe that God accepts. So over half of Self-professed evangelicals, 56% believe that God accepts worship from all religions. All religions. You can be Muslim and deny that God would ever have a son. Because it's, it, it's, it's, it's offensive to Muslims to think that God, that Allah, would do anything with the flesh. But that's okay. God accepts that worship. That's foolish. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, through his name. In his name alone is salvation found through no one else. But yet 56% of evangelicals in America think, no, salvation is found in other names. See, the American church is not teaching the message of the Son. The American church is teaching morality. It's why 94% of them can say, well, sex outside of marriage is wrong, but yet they can deny the truths of Scripture. See, the church doesn't know who the Son is. And we're not making disciples of Christ because we're not proclaiming Christ to be the Son of God who was crucified for our sin. We're proclaiming morality. We're proclaiming our own agendas. We're proclaiming religious liberty, our rights, social justice, but we're not proclaiming Christ crucified. It's little wonder that churches nowadays that are faithful to scriptures are becoming harder and harder to find. And if you've ever moved, if you've ever left a church, and you ever looked for a church, you know how hard it is to find a church that sticks to the Scriptures. Even within our own denomination, we have to be careful. And this is why we must be careful not to neglect his message. We must not assume, because a church calls itself a church, that it's faithful, that it hasn't neglected the Son's message. I mean, looking at those numbers that we looked at, at least half the churches out there that are evangelical can't be trusted. We must also not assume because a school or an organization has the word Christian in it, that it is. Teaching the Bible, whether it's in a church or in a school or any other means, teaching the Bible does not equal teaching Christ. If obedience to his word is lacking, Christ is not being taught. At the same time, however, if obedience is being taught, but not his grace as well, Christ is not being taught. His whole message, the whole message of the Son must be taught and obeyed. It cannot be parceled apart. 
So when we look at verse 3 and consider, well, how does this neglect happen? How do churches end up this way? How do we as individuals neglect the message of the Son? Well, we can begin by considering the example that Jesus gives us in Matthew 22, 5, where the same Greek word, amelo, is used for neglect, or in this verse, no attention. In this, if you remember Matthew 22, Jesus says that the kingdom of God can be compared to a wedding feast. That the king has sent out an invitation to his people. He has given them a heads up. All right, this was common practice back then. You'd receive two invitations. One, a heads up, and then two, it's time to come. His people had received the initial invitation, and now he tells them, hey, it's time to come to the wedding feast. And this is how they respond. They paid no attention. They neglected the summons and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. So those who were summoned, they neglected what the king said. Not only did they neglect what the king said, but some of them, if you keep reading the parable, go on and they kill the messengers, the one who brought the invite. And in response, what does the king do? He burns down the city. He comes and he lays waste to all those who neglected his invite because they were more concerned about their own passions, about their own desires. As a church, we can do this when we become more focused on the needs and wants of society, when we allow felt needs to determine how we do church or what programs we do, don't do, or, or what we preach, when we allow our music to be focused on energy and appealing to the masses rather than praising God and building up the body faithfully, or when we as a church, when we neglect the message of the Son, from the pulpit, when we no longer preach the message of Christ crucified, when we no longer call people to repentance, when we no longer warn people of the risk of drifting away. Right? It's one thing to, to evangelize, tell people about their sins, and then when they're saved, that's, that's great, but then it's a whole other thing to tell people who are saved, hey, you still got to repent. You still sin. You still committed these things. To, to, bring, to have them feel the sting of the Spirit over and over again, that's a whole other story. But that is what we're called to do. But when we neglect that, no one's being saved. Messages, though they may be full of energy or even zeal, do not save. Though they may speak of God, if they lack the truth of God, if they lack the message of Christ crucified, they do not save. And you have a responsibility in all of this, which you, you, those of you who are sitting in the pew, you will be held account accountable. See, if you give heed to godless messages and you neglect the one given by the Son, do not think that if you do not repent, you will enter the kingdom. In Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. See, there are many right now sitting comfortably in a chair or a pew in churches across America hearing a message that scratches their ears and fattens their souls. And they're sitting there believing that they are saved. They're looking forward to the game this afternoon. They think they're good because they're part of a church. The pastor likes them. They like the pastor. The people at church like them. They serve in the church. And they always feel good every Sunday morning when they go to church. But when the day of reckoning comes and they go before Jesus, Jesus is going to be like, I don't know you. Who are you? And they're going to be like, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things? I don't know you. You didn't do the will of my Father. And they didn't do the will of the Father because they did not pay attention. So we must be diligent. 
You must test everything. You must know the scripture so that you may know what the message is and what the message is not. Let no one, let no man, no woman, not even the man who is called Pope, lead you astray. If you listen to Francis, he will lead you astray because his message is not the son's message, nor is it greater. But don't be fooled by Protestant pastors either. There are many out there claiming to know God, but they do not know him, as evidenced by the survey results I shared earlier. But let me give you another survey that is pastor-specific. This one was done by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. It was released in May. They found that only 37% of pastors in the U.S. hold a biblical worldview. And they broke that down by pastoral role as well. So they had senior pastors, youth pastors, teaching pastors, executive pastors, and so forth. Senior pastors led the way at 41%. So only 41%, so six out of 10 pastors that they surveyed do not hold to a biblical worldview. Six out of 10. At the bottom came in youth pastors at 12%. Just above that, Teaching pastors at 13%. Now, a teaching pastor, you know where you find teaching pastors at? Because they're different than senior pastors. You find them at mega churches that can have a senior pastor and then have a main teaching pastor. And so they're influencing thousands of people every Sunday. 13% hold to a biblical worldview. So if you wonder, well, is there a reason to be skeptical? Yes. And we should always be skeptical, and at times critical, not on petty things, but on the truth. Why? Because your soul is at stake. And the souls of your children depend on it. Parents, you have a responsibility to raise your children in the faith. The church is called to help out in that, but don't depend on the church. You're the primary disciple maker in your home. And this is why I welcome questions. I'm an open book because I preach from an open book the answers are before me, right? They're not a mystery to me. They're before me, and I trust and I believe the answers. Those who close the book, they don't believe the answers. It's why they close the book. It's why they don't preach from it. It's why they keep themselves closed. It's why they, they, don't want question. they don't want questions. They don't want to be challenged. A good litmus test of your church, so if you're visiting or if you're online, when you go back to your church, a good litmus test, if you haven't done this already, ask a question about the faith, about Scripture. And see how the leadership, how the elders and the pastors engage with you. Uh, they keep brushing it off, especially if it's a hot topic one, and they don't engage with you, major red flag. And if your church does neglect the son's message, you need to leave it. Do not stay. Don't stay there. Don't be like, well, I love the people there. Well, if you love them, then warn them. Do your job as a brother and sister in Christ and warn them don't neglect the son's message. Leave, and leave the blind to leave the blind. Those are the words of Jesus. Do not partake in any way in, others people's, in other people's neglect of the son's message. Have no part of it. As John says in 2 John 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, this teaching of the gospel, this teaching that Jesus is the son of God and that he's crucified for our sins, if they do not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Don't say hello to him. All right, this is the Apostle John, the beloved disciple. And what his main point is, don't support their ministry in any way. 
Don't show them hospitality. Don't support them. Have no connections with them. So we need to make sure that if we're part of a church that is neglecting the son's message, you know, we engage with the leadership, we try to get them to repent, we try to see what's going on, but we need to cut ties. Do not partake in this evil. But let us consider how we as individuals may neglect the son's message. We neglect the message in three key ways. First, when we prioritize other things above the son's message. Yesterday, uh, my boys, our, our family, went to the boat tours down the Dells. Our homeschool group, we, we had a presentation done on how it's evidence, how the, how the flood made all the geology stuff down there happen. It's really neat and interesting. And it made me think, it is possible, you can be real passionate and apologetics, right? You can be real, real passionate talking about how the flood is real and Noah's Ark and all this other stuff, but not know the son's message. So we need to be careful that we don't allow our own passions even things that are good and well-intended, right? It's good to know these things. It's good to study how the flood actually changed the geology of, of the earth and how God made it happen. It's good to do that, but not at the expense of the son's message. It's possible to pay attention to the son's message and do this well also, but we must not be well at this thing and neglect the son's message. We could be caught up in politics and our desire for religious freedom. Good things, but not when we neglect the son's message. Another way we do it is when we hear the message, but we don't put it into practice. This is perhaps the most common way that we do it. We must not neglect faithful application. For though you may possess his word in your heart, you neglect his word if you fail to use his word. You need to recognize that every call to obedience that is in the message of the Son is a message of grace from God calling you to holiness. Right? This is where eternal joy, peace, and contentment is found. It's found in keeping his word so that we remain in the Son, that we remain in Jesus Christ. Right? John 14, 15, those who love me, those who abide in me are those who keep my words, those who obey them. And if you obey them, then I and my Father, we will manifest we will reveal ourselves to you we will make our home with you so we must be willing to irrigate our own wounds we must be willing to apply the purifying steam of god's word upon our sinful and impure souls the third way is when we deny the saving work of christ and we trust in something else and anything else we must not leave the anchor of grace that is found in the son's message for any obedience we seek out, we do so because we have experienced and trusted his grace. We don't seek out obedience to earn it. It wouldn't be grace. We seek it out because we have experienced his grace. That we have been saved from wrath and from ourselves. Have you ever been in a situation where you needed to be rescued? Where you needed a third party, strangers that you didn't know, they had to come and pull you out, perhaps at great risk. When you're in a situation like that and you come out of it, you're humbled, right? And if you haven't been in a situation, just simply watch. I mean, there, you can watch it on TV, you can read books about it. There are countless stories of people being rescued. But when they are, they're humbled and they're incredibly grateful. But not one of them is like, boy, I hope I can do that again. I'm going I'm to go right back and do the very thing that got me in that situation again. No, they're, they're going to do their best. They're going to do whatever they can not to be in that situation again. Not to be... Because it, it, to be rescued, it, it can be humiliating at times. It's like, boy, it's foolish that I got out there. 
And these men, these women put themselves at risk to rescue me. They don't even know me, and I don't even know them. Likewise, we who have been saved by grace, if we have been saved, we don't desire to go back into the sin from which we have been saved from. Not willfully, anyway. Right? We don't just go turn around and go, high-five Jesus and, and go back into our, our addictions or into our sins and, as if it's no big deal. No, we're, we don't want to go back there. We want to stay away from it. However, if we do, if we do go back into those moments, we know that his grace abounds and that the Son who saved us and spoke to us stands as our advocate before the Father. He's our great high priest. This is the whole argument of the letter of Hebrews. This first warning, the author will continue to expound and explain how this fleshes itself out in our day-to-day lives. We don't need to go to the sacraments. We, don't, we do communion weekly here, not to receive forgiveness of sin. We do communion to be reminded that we have been forgiven of sin, that the work is finished, that we can rest in it. If you die before taking communion, if you have a heart attack before you come up here this morning and you pass into eternity, you're going to pass, if you're a believer, you're going to pass into his presence. There's no purgatory to go to. There's no penalty for that. Why? Because it's been paid for in the Son. So we must not trust other things. We neglect the Son's message when we start thinking, I have to do this, I have to add to this, I must you know, pay, pay for the penalty somehow, some way, beyond what has already been paid. We must rest in him and trust in him as our great high priest. But that's not always easy, nor is it pleasant. Dealing with our sins is hardly ever comfortable. Think of a soldier that's on the battlefield who is wounded, though he's been given medical training, he's been given medical supplies, he has a tourniquet, and he needs to use a tourniquet on a limb, but he knows that if he puts a tourniquet on that limb, he might lose that limb. So he thinks he can make it on his own, so he doesn't apply the tourniquets, because he doesn't apply the tourniquet, because he fears losing his limb, he loses his whole life. It must not be so for us. May we not treat our souls so lightly. May we be willing to seek everlasting life at all costs, recognizing that we've been given all that we need by the, by the Son's message. And by His message, by His word, may we also be comforted that whatever we lose in this life, whatever we give up for his sake, we will receive a hundredfold in the eternity that is to come. And may we all, in all things, with thanksgiving, be filled with filled of joy that our, our God, our Lord and Savior, that he, out of his grace, out of his love, he has spoken to us. He has warned us. He has shown us the way. He has marked out the narrow path where the narrow gate is. He has given us a heads up of the hardships that we will face, the difficulties that is before us, and that he is with us in all of this, and that he is faithfully and patiently enduring with us in all of these things as he awaits the day when he returns or when he calls us home. And he will do so regardless of our sin if we confess and repent to the Son. So let us seek him in all that we do, and may we forever, each day, pay attention closely to what he has said and to what he has given us. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for this warning. I ask that you would help us to hear it. That if we have any wounds, pains, any sensitivities on this matter, for whatever reason, anything that might be hindering us to, from hearing this word completely, help us to lay it down. May your spirit remove it. Help us to be humble enough, gracious enough to hear your word, to recognize the severe consequence of not hearing what you have spoken. Call us to your word. May we come to your word daily. May we read it, know it, understand it, study it, so that we will know what your message is, that we will know who your son is, recognize the false Christ, and know the true Christ. And Father, if we have neglected your message, we seek forgiveness in that, and we thank you that you are patient with us. We thank you that you do discipline us. We thank you that you allow us to, to um, be able to come back into the fold after we have selfishly and ignorantly or arrogantly wandered from what you have given us. May, may we come back. May we hear your message. May we pay so much more attention to it than we have before so that you would be glorified and that we would re- remain and abide in your Son. So Father, I ask that you would Bless all who are hearing this message this morning, all who are here, that as we come to the table, we would be encouraged by the bread and the cup, that we would be reminded of Christ crucified, that your son bled on the cross for our sins, that we are forgiven, that it's finished, that it's done, the full price for all of our sins, past and present and future, have been paid for. We cannot add, we cannot take away from his work. And Father, in, in that light of that truth, may we show grace towards one another just as the grace has shown to us, even when it hurts us, may we show grace to one another. Remembering that when we neglect grace, when we don't give grace to others, we are neglecting the message. So give us the strength, the peace, the joy, the contentment that we need in order to love one another as you call us to. So that as we go from here, Father, we can bring that message that the Son has given us and we can share it to those who yet do not know your Son and that are lost in darkness, and that your name may be proclaimed, that you would be glorified. Father, we thank you for all of these things, and we ask all these things for your glory. By the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.